Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 23rd, 2019, and my guest is economist and author Arnold Kling. This is his 16th appearance on EconTalk. He was last here in July of 2018 talking about morality, culture, and tribalism. Arnold, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. This episode's a bit unusual. We're going to talk about your book, The Three Languages of Politics, which we've already talked about on the program back in June of 2013. But there's a new edition of the book, which is available at Amazon in hardcover, paperback, on a Kindle for a mere $3.99, and it's also available as an ebook, PDF, et cetera, at no charge at libertarianism.org, and we will link to all of those. But the other reason, besides this new edition, uh, the reason we're revisiting the three languages is that a lot has happened since 2013. There's plenty to talk about, and I finally want to say that we are recording this in front of a live audience at the Cato Institute, so you guys can applaud now. Thank you. There's about 600 people here, I'd say. Um, just, I couldn't know if you could tell from the applause at, at home. Um, so a quick review. Uh, what are the three languages of politics? Okay, and I'm going to back you up. And okay. Start, start back with sort of why I, why I wrote the book, which was I noticed that the expression of political opinions in the traditional media and the social media was not constructive. And the way I put it at the time is people are not trying to express themselves in a way that would change the minds of the other side. They're not trying to open the minds of their own side. They're just trying to close the minds of their own side. And so the big question is, you know, how did this happen? How does this, how does this work? Uh, how did we end up talking past each other and then why? And so now I can go to the three languages, uh, which is... Um, sort of my explanation of how tactically people manage to talk past each other, sort of dog whistle to their own side and not, uh, not talk to the other side. Um, so there's a progressive language, a conservative language, and a libertarian language. And the, I, each one sets up axes of opposition. So the progressive, it's the oppressor versus the oppressed. So the evil side is uh, people who are uh, on the same side as oppressors, and uh, the good side are people who are fighting for the oppressed. Uh, conservatives put the axis of civilization versus barbarism. So the people who really, conservatives really feel threatened by, they accuse of taking, getting rid of civilization's restraints and taking us back to barbarism. And for libertarians, it's libertarian versus liberty versus coercion. They see coercion as sort of the ultimate evil and um, the state as the sort of the, um, the legitimate arm of co- co- coercion and sort of the state is the biggest th- threat to increase coercion. So you have these three bads, um, oppression, barbarism and coercion we think that we all think they're bad but each 
uh, tribe, as it were, thinks it has kind of a monopoly on fighting one particular bad. And putting both of our, all of our cards on the table, uh, I would say, and you publicly say in the book, it's not a secret, that we, we tend to be more sympathetic to the libertarian uh, axis, the idea that we can organize our thinking around coercion versus freedom. I, I sometimes tend to look at issues that way, but I have to say that since I read your book and since I've grown up, which is about the last, I'd say, four years or so, uh, recently turned 65, I feel like I've finally grown up, um, I start to see a lot more merit in the other sides. And you could argue that that is a, literally a form of maturity, a form of intellectual maturity. Would you agree with that? And would you agree with my characterization of your views, just to get that straight? Yeah, I think uh, sort of I would describe myself as sort of libertarian slash conservative. I have probably the, the least sympathy on the progressive side. But as you said, there are certain issues, certain things where that, that voice is correct. Um, and I think can think of historical examples where you know different sides got it wrong. Um, I'd say the civil rights movement circa 1963-64, when you have <coughs> libertarians trying to defend states' rights, as Barry Goldwater did, um, that just seems like they were on the wrong side of that of that one. Uh, the oppressor oppressed axis probably works uh, is, is <coughs> was a better frame in that case. So, uh, yeah, I think it is more mature to sort of be able to be more flexible and be willing to, to see these various sides. I want to add that if, um, for those of you listening and, and here in person, uh, one of the drawbacks of this book is it takes a lot of, of the fun out of hating your political opponents. So you might not want to read it. I, you know, you read it, you should have a warning warning label, caution, may lead to tolerance of people who don't think the way you do, or may lead to charitable views toward people you disagree with. And I think um, one of the reasons, let me say two things. First of all, this is one of the most, in terms of bang for the buck, and I don't mean price, I mean in terms of effort and time you have to put in to read the book, it's really an extended essay is how I would describe it. It's not a lengthy tome. In terms of what you get out of it, it's way up there in my list of books that have had the biggest impact on me per word. And I would, the other thing I would add, you can react to both those statements, the other thing I would add is that it, it's hard to think of a more timely or important book given how hostile people are and intolerant they are of people who disagree with them. So uh, I, I think this is a book whose time has come. It was prescient in 20 whenever it came out the first time, 2013. 2013, when we talked about it. Now I feel like it's more of an imperative. Yeah, I have sort of mixed feelings about that in that I, I, things are changing so quickly that you know, I, I almost feel like this edition is already out of date in some <laughs> sense. Um, I do, but it's more timely in the sense that a lot of, I think many more people now are upset at the state of political discourse and wondering, you know, how did this happen? You know, how, how are we doing this? And uh, <clears throat> the book, w between the first edition and the second edition, this is now the third, uh, really 
explored a lot of sort of political psychology, and there's a lot of that, and we can we can get into that if you want. Sort of the the psychology that uh, creates this polarization, and political psychology has just taken off in the last five years, and that's a sense in which this book is was prescient, was ahead of its time. Um, you know, these a, a term that's that's <coughs> really accelerating its usage. Uh, is called affective polarization. And what that just means, and that's distinct from issue polarization. So issue polarization would be people getting on opposite sides of you know, gun control or abortion or what have you. Affective polarization is just pure love for your own side and more than that, hatred of the other side. And, you know, there's... Just, you know, recently, you know, this psychological phenomenon I couldn't, didn't even have in the book because I just came across it recently, that suppose you get a little frustrated with the people on your side. Let's say you're a Republican. You don't really like Trump that much. Your psychological response to that is to hate the Democrats more. Because that sort of, you know, tones down the cognitive dissonance you feel about being a Republican who doesn't like Trump. So um, your dislike of, of leaders on your own side causes you to hate the other side more. That's just one example of the psychology that's involved in uh, creating this polarization and people talking past each other. Adam Smith in The Theory of Moral Sentiments says that uh, I'd like you to like what I like. So if I tell you this is a really great movie and you go see it, I'm going to feel good if you if you like it. And I'll be disappointed if you don't like it. But if I see what I think is a really awful movie and I tell you how awful it is and you like it, then I'm really upset. So we're, it's more important, Smith claims, and this seems to be an example of effective polarization, it's more important that we uh, that our friends hate what we hate rather than that they like what we like. Well, that's interesting because it's certainly the way people write. I mean, I, I describe um, you know, this phenomenon of demonization. So uh, um, you, you can think of you know, two extreme types of ways of communicating on, on issues. You can think of being in a persuasion mode or in a demonization mode. So persuasion, you know, think of a high school debate team where you, know, you absolutely don't make any personal criticism of the other team. You focus on the substance and on the, the logic and, and so on. Uh, and you play by very careful rules. Demonization, you know, think of road rage. All you want to do is let the whole world know that this guy that cut you off is a horrible person. And you know, in politics, demonization means just trying to let the whole world, make sure that the whole world hates the, the person you hate. And you know, when I think of the examples of uh, people whose opinions are, all, are expressed in this demonization terms, you know, listen to a Rush Limbaugh episode any afternoon, and he's trying to make sure that you hate the liberals. Or read any Paul Krugman column, and he's trying to make sure that you understand that you should hate the conservatives. Um, you know, that... So that, that is, again, part of this, you know, I call this demonization, and that is 
what characterizes so much uh, political commentary nowadays in regular media and social media. So I've, I've claimed that, or made the argument that that, that demonization has, has come out of the expanded choice in our media landscape that we have an opportunity, unlike, say, a world of three television stations that were all very similar, we now have the chance to tailor our choices of media that we consumed and information that we consumed to our tastes. And we're not so interested in the truth, which is no one likes to be told that. It's uh, an unpleasant piece of, uh, of information. In fact, when I used to say things like that to people, they, they don't just go, no, I, I'm interested to, they yell at you because it, it hurts their feelings. They don't like to be told that. Uh, the idea that, that media exists to give me what I like in the same way that uh, Amazon does or Zappos or a restaurant and that this profusion of choice has allowed this to happen is, I think, extremely important because it allows me to, to have a stream of information that plays to those tastes that you're talking about on both sides. I, I consume what I like and I get to hate what I don't like. And my Twitter feed, my Facebook feed, my timeline, my choices of, of uh, newspaper, et cetera, uh, feed that, that tribalism. Yeah, well, I think there's trying to assess, you know, what, what causal factors have created this sort of apparent increase in demonization is tough. It's, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, my two favorite kind of causal things, one of them you just named, the change in the media environment. Uh, but, you know, you can ask to what extent is the increase in polarization, you know, causing the media environment to change and what, you know, to what extent the other way around. Uh, the other favorite causal factor would be um, the <coughs> sort of cultural sorting that has taken place where, uh, you know, people with different political views, different social classes, different backgrounds, use, I think used to mix a lot more uh, and they don't as much. And that, um, that can feed polarization because if you're only around people who agree with you, then there's a high risk in uh, taking the other side's point of view in, in, in public among your group and a very low risk in taking an extreme negative point of view about the other side within your own group. So there's this natural tendency for groups to become more polarized as they become more sorted. But I think it's the, <coughs> the whole causal... I would say that the causal model would look like a tangled ball of thread. It'd be very hard to uh, to you know figure out where which threads to pull to unravel it. Um, and one counter argument I'll get from people, or people should think about when we talk about the media environment, is you know look at the 19th century media environment, uh, where you know it's overtly partisan newspapers or broadsheets or propaganda sheets. Um, and, you know, people say, well, politics was never clean. Um, I think my response to that is that, but we can cite some examples of persuasion, not demonization. I th I'm sure demonization, you can, you can show cartoons and propaganda sheets and whatever, but I don't think the Federalist Papers were 
would be accused of demonization. I don't think that the Lincoln-Douglas debates were about demonization. So there were at least some very important examples uh, where the, the discussion was better. But um, I, I'm sensitive to somebody saying, look, don't look at 1960 and the you know, political, economic, and media environment in the United States and say that's normal. I mean, it, it may feel normal to us, you know, we, we're growing up with that, but um, I, I am sensitive to somebody coming and saying, well, that's... Well, there's no doubt that, that um, politics was a dirty, was a blood sport in the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, 21st century. I, I, I think the difference is the role that the consumption of media played in people's well, let me say it this way. This is why I would try to salvage my otherwise monocausal explanation. I think the media environment, what people consumed and the role it played in their lives was, was really different. Uh, most people in, in 1800 were kind of focused on getting food on the table. Uh, today we have a lot of time on our hands, which is a, a feature and a bug. Yeah, I, the way I describe it, I, you know, I, I'm... Uh I've always liked a sort of a McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan type look at the media and how they kind of uh, relate to society overall. And one of the distinctions I like to draw is between what I call the sub-Dunbar world, and that refers to the Dunbar number of, you know, you, you can recognize about 150 faces, 150 close friends, and the super-Dunbar world of the larger society. And I think related to what you just said, those were very separate for a long time. I mean, you knew that you, know, you lived most of your life in the sub-Dunbar world, among your family, among your work associates, uh, among neighbors, and you didn't, and they were all close to you. you. You saw them physically. You didn't see them on a screen. Um, and the super-Dunbar world was some distant world that you... Uh, was you know where people were organizing society or they were running large corporations, and that you didn't feel you didn't feel intimate. So there was a clear separation. You didn't feel as intimate with this super Dunbar world, and that has changed with the internet, and it's just progressively changed with smartphones. So you get to the point where your friends exist on screen on a screen. You know, the people that you used to be intimate with now exist on a screen. And then the people that on the screen appear to be intimate to you. So you take a lot more, you feel a lot more sense of ownership of what's going on in public life. And you care about it a lot more. An example of that that I've discovered this summer is talking to young people about the issue of free speech. I had this dialogue with a bunch of young people. It was a I don't know, maybe a dialogue of the deaf, but I, was, I would say, uh, you know, free speech is good. And they say, but there are bad people out there saying bad things. But free speech is good, but there are bad people out there saying bad things. So it's just kind of that back and forth. And I think the difference is that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if there were bad people out there saying bad things, they disappeared from view pretty quickly. Classic example, the Nazis who marched in Skokie, Illinois in 1977. That was a big deal in the days leading up to the march. After the march, they were completely forgotten about. Today, There are about 12 of them. Yeah, well, but today you get Those these... Those 12 can be really loud today. 
and they and they persist and they're in your face and your friends remind you that they were there. So something like Charlottesville, which is another relatively small event numerically, is vivid in people's minds and people feel like I have to do something about it. It's like there's no separate, that isn't part of a separate world that people could forget about most of the time, which is, but where the Nazi march in Skokie, people could forget about very quickly. I think that sub-Dunbar, super-Dunbar distinction is, would make a good chapter in edition four of your book, the fourth edition. I, I do think there's a, you know, there's this, this famous cartoon. Well, it's famous for me. It's probably not famous for most of us, but um, I probably mentioned it before. I think about it every once in a while. It uh, shows a man at his computer terminal, and, and he's talking to his wife off, off panel, outside the panel. And he says, honey, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be up in a minute. Some, somebody said something wrong on the Internet. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you have that problem. Uh, I sometimes have that problem. Some person who doesn't understand fill in the blank, economics, trade issues, doesn't matter what it is, has said something that, that, quote, I know is wrong. Now, in the abstract, I know there are millions, maybe billions of people who don't understand that phenomenon out in the real world. Why is it that they've come into my living room in some dimension, into my brain, into my sense of uh, consciousness, because I read it now uh, in my Twitter feed as a response to me on Twitter. Uh, and I, I find that, um, I'll, I'll just say that I think culturally we haven't figured out how to deal with that yet, right? The Hayek writes a lot about the difference between the microcosm and the macrocosm and how the norms that we have for interacting with a small group are different than the extended order of cooperation that we call a market economy. We're pretty good at that. We've gotten better, but we still struggle with that. And he talks about the urge we have in the, in the fatal conceit. He talks about the urge we have towards socialism, to extend the socialism of the family, which is a beautiful thing, to the larger macrocosm where it's not so beautiful, tends to lead to tyranny, he argues, and I, and I agree. And I think that struggle is similar to the struggle that you're highlighting here of how I interact with the people in my intimate or casual circle versus strangers versus, you know, I have many friends on the internet who I've never met, right? Who I consider my friends or associates or I interact with them in various ways online. And the rules for how, not just just the norms of how to do that politely, but how I should think about my interaction with them and my standing and and co- connection to them, I think we haven't quite figured out. Yeah, well, I, for instance, I I wish people would use my terms of service on Facebook, which is no politics at all. You know, I mean, I'll share you know posts about my travel or dancing or anything. Anything I would I would do put up a cat video before I do anything on politics and, and when someone's a bold statement Arnold and, <laughs> <laughs> frightening it's shocking and you know it's just it's just not a medium for that and and when I you know when somebody says something wrong or something that really upsets me on Facebook you know I just have this rigid rule don't comment don't like don't share just you know and. Uh, and if, if somebody 
even if they're posting things that I like, but they're, all they're doing is posting politics on Facebook, unfollow. Um, so that, but that's my, my cultural adaptation. Obviously, that's strange. Why do so many people post politi- political things on Facebook? What do they think they're accomplished? If you step back and ask, what did you accomplish by doing that? I think the best answer they could probably give is, well, I let off some steam. Yeah. yeah it's a form of uh, therapy for them, but they, they might argue. But I, I think it's, I think it's, and I think you'd, maybe you'd agree that it's all um, looking for the, uh, the dopamine. You know, I need, I don't have enough followers. I'm, I want more followers. So the way I find them is I yell, yeah. I rant, I pose, I wave a banner around that says I'm one of these. And, and I, the, the people who disagree with you culturally, who I watch on Twitter reposting and retweeting and, and cheering on the, the um, uninformative but zealous statement of political belief, I look at them in, you know, in shock. Yeah, I'm like, I want to say, what do you think you're doing? And then I think, oh, I know what you're doing. You do too, don't you? <laughs> well, yeah there, there, there are, yeah, there are a lot of things. But I, again, you know, going back to your point that we maybe have not culturally adjusted properly to the technology that's <coughs> kind of you know, suddenly gotten into our lives, I think is, is the point. And we'll have to see how that turns out. I see this book in a way as an attempt to reshape the culture Right, and to to think differently about our political disagreements, uh, one of the problems I have with it is, I think uh, it appeals to you and me, and most people don't want to learn that other language of the their opponents. They don't want to empathize, and so you and I saying, "Hey, this is how the other side thinks." If you now, let me just put a footnote to that. If you have a spouse who's in the other axis, <laughs> speaking the other language, this is good for your marriage to read this book because you'll realize, oh, yeah, he's not a jerk. She's not an idiot. She just looks at the world differently than I do. And I think that is a clear, practical application. But for the, most people, uh, they're not so interested in what you're selling. How do you react to that? Um, that may be true. I think, you know, if you're trying to... If I were trying to sum up a prescription of this book, uh, and I don't have this phrase in the book, like a, you know, this is one of these things I keep thinking about, you know, as I go along, and I, I sometimes come up with better formulations. But I would say my phrase would be, "Those who know better should do better." So there are a lot of people who are just not going to know any better. They're just going to, you know, they're just going <coughs> to. See, haters, haters going to hate. Well, not, but even just sort of, they see other people doing it, right? They see this is the way. This seems to be the way political discourse is is uh, conducted. So I'll jump in and do the same thing. Um, so I think anyone who reads this book will will know better, right? And uh, probably, but to your point, maybe the people who are drawn to this book probably knew better anyway, you know, it, it, so I don't know how, you know, to what extent it, it, it brings about change, but that would be my line. It's pretty feeble. Uh, th- those, those who know better should do better. Um, and anyway, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Probably come back to some of that later. I, I, um, I will say, you know, I'm, I'm teasing a little bit about, you know, why would anyone want to 
want to um, follow your insights and learn about them. But I do think for me personally, I don't think I'm normal, but I do think for me personally, it has softened some of my dislike for the ideas of the other side as well as the people who hold those views. And I think that's a better life. Uh, I don't think, uh, I think it's hard to appreciate the, um, the serenity, it's a little strong, but the, um, the peace that comes from not hating other people. It's very tempting to hate other people. It's very tempting, and I would argue you know, Sebastian Junger was on here talking about his book, Tribe. I think that's a profound book. We're tribal. We are, we are tribal to say, oh, that's a mistake. You shouldn't be tribal. I think that's naive. We are tribal. So what I found your ideas do for me is that they, they, make, they raise the possibility that I can uh, admire, respect, the people in the other tribes and even the tribes themselves. And I find myself, I, I like that feeling. Uh, I also like the feeling of hating the, the other side and looking down on them. I understand the appeal of self-righteousness. It's very deeply in us and I think partly through that tribalism. Uh, but when you can step away from that, and for me it's a little bit like the agnosticism I sometimes advocate on here on Econ Talk, that it's good to say I don't know it's also good to say, you might be right, uh, which is really hard for us to say. Um, and so I think your book, for those who have a taste for that, who would like to explore that taste, your book opens up that part of your palate. Okay. You want to say anything? No. No? Okay, I just want to applaud? Yeah, okay. I'll just... Um, That's part of the problem is sometimes we're a little bit like, you know, twins separated at birth, you know, don't have, don't have good arguments. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's true. But, but I, would, I would argue that the goal of, of EconTalk is not to have a good argument, it's to get smarter. So uh, for those of you out there, I hope some of you are getting smarter. One of, one of the things you, you mentioned in the book, I'm, I want to come back to this tribal, come to this tribalism issue. One of the things you mentioned in the book is I think it's just a sentence, but it's, it's something that, that I think about. Uh, religion has organized standard mainstream religion has become less, uh, people are less connected to it. Even over the last decade, uh, rates of church attendance and other forms of religiosity have gone down. So one thought, which you put forward, I don't suggest it, quote, is true, but it is provocative, is the idea that as we have moved away from uh, religion as a source of tribalism, we found other places to express that. Yeah, and I, that's, that's a fear that, that, that politics is kind of filling that space. Uh, one of, you know, I've mentioned that a lot of the political psychology that I've become aware of has kind of emerged since the first edition came out in 2013. And one of the books was by Liliana Mason, who I think you Former Econ Talk guest, yeah. We talked about that book. Um, and um, she talks about the decline in the, the term is cross-cutting identities. Yeah. So if you... 
you know, if you just feel strongly about anything, you know, your religion, your sports team or whatever, and you find yourself um, associating with other people who share that point of view or share that emotion, and then it turns out that you disagree with those people on politics, that kind of attenuates your hatred of them. So, like, if, uh, you know, if a... Uh, Trump supporter and a Trump hater happen to show up at a sports bar rooting for the same team in the World Series, you know, maybe that would just make them a little bit less inclined to see each other as inhuman and completely offbeat. And so religion was one of those things that used to do that, where you see, you know, that there, <coughs> uh, people's politics wasn't perfectly correlated with religion. Uh, and that used to matter, but um, you know, my, I think re- people's emotional commitment to their religion is is so much less now that I don't think he can even serve that function, even for people who are observant and going to church and synagogue. My, I mean, I feel like the people who go to my synagogue are much more. You know, they're very open-minded religiously. I mean, if you tell them, you know, is, is there something terribly wrong with Islam? Oh, no, there are good things about Islam. Is there something terribly wrong with Christianity? Oh, no, there are good things about Christianity. Is there something, are there good things about Republicans? Oh, no. You know, so, um, yeah, they're just much more committed politically than they are religiously. Which is- yeah, I used to have a hope. Uh, I did go through a phase uh, it was very short-lived, uh, where I thought it might be a good thing for people to do activities that, that their in-group doesn't normally do. Uh, you know, this would be uh, Republicans going to yoga classes and Democrats going to NASCAR. The Lily Anna Mason worried that NASCAR was a dangerous place for African Americans, and I thought that was an interesting example of, of some of the problem we're talking about, that that even the idea of of going to a non-political event where you know that people are a certain way culturally or politically could be fraught with danger uh, is, I think, symptomatic of, of really a huge cultural problem. And, a, you know, it's, a pro- it's part of the reason I think people have trouble with patriotism today. It's like, whose country are you talking about, mine or theirs? Uh, I like my version of patriotism, but theirs is dangerous. Um, and I, I think that's um, that's really scary. I, I suggested in a recent Econ Talk episode that it hasn't aired yet. It'll be out in a couple of weeks um, with uh, Ryan Holiday uh, riffing on an idea of Marina Abramovich that it would be interesting to have a physical space where people from opposite ends of the political spectrum or different ends – in your case, it's three. There's at least three. We'll get to the fourth in a minute. But people in different spaces could just sit across from each other in silence and look into the eyes of that person and be aware of their humanity. Yoga might do that. Cheering for NASCAR or sports team or um, you know going folk dancing, I think, could do that. Um, and maybe in response to the appeal of the virtual world, we will find more places in the physical world to do that than we have recently. Maybe that'll help bring us together. In fact, one of the great comforts to me, and it's a terrible comfort, is that when we have a horrible thing happen in the United States, whether it's a mass shooting or a physical disaster, people pull together like 
quote, they used to, right? People rescue other human beings without thought of who they are or what they're about. You know, I suggested um, recently we're, we're, we're not far from where President Reagan was shot. And as the Washington Hilton, he was rushed to the GW, George Washington University Medical Center, the emergency room. And there's a, Reagan makes this joke that was funny at the time. He looked up at the, he was still somewhat conscious. He looked up at the doctor and said, I hope you're a Republican. That wouldn't be funny in today's, that's where we are, I think. We're in a world where uh, people just can't handle the political differences and and they don't even experience them. So I I do think it would be great if we found social venues and other ways to interact with people who aren't just like us. And maybe not just interact, but actually have joint um, projects that they're both working, both they're working to do, so that they they realize that they're working with each other and they can. That's 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 a real kumbaya theory. Yeah. Well, that's what the you know when you rescue a person from a flood, uh, you don't ask for their voter registration card. I hope I, yeah. I don't think we do. Although there was a story, and I think I just put it on my blog of a uh, a tow truck driver who arrives at uh, you know. A, uh, somebody who needs a tow and then finds out their politics and drives away without towing them. Mm. Okay. Sad. That's great. Um, let, let's talk about uh, the last five years. Uh, when, when the, I was going to say the Trump phenomenon. I don't want to call it the Trump phenomenon. I'm going to call it the rise of populism and nationalism, which I, I think people mistakenly associate with Trump as the cause of it. I think he is more the result you know, we look around the world, we see a rise of, of, of these phenomena, not just in the United States. And I first saw them as a seemingly fourth axis in use of, uh, or fourth language. What are your thoughts on that? And what do you have to say in the book? I know you write about it as well. Yeah, um, yeah I, I came up with the term in the uh, sort of the Bobo versus anti-Bobo axis. And that Bobo refers to a... 20-year-old book by David Brooks called Bobos in Paradise, and Bobo stands for Bohemian Bourgeois. But So that's all uh, terminology, but it, um, <coughs> there clearly are, um, there emerged a, a lot of resentment of elites in both parties um, on the part of you know, a, lot, a lot of people. Um, and you know, this is most strongly evident in, let's say, the, the contrast between college-educated women and non-college-educated men. Uh, you know, so college-educated women are, now make up a huge portion of the Democratic vote, and uh, non-college-educated men make up a, a large portion of the Republican vote, and uh, Trump, I think, pulled in a lot of non-college-educated men who had voted Democratic, even for President Obama, uh, and that was kind of his narrow margin of victory in, the, in those states. So that is yet another axis. So there's, there's been a lot of change in the last several years, and, and, and it's, the change is ongoing. It's hard. It's, uh, you know, if, um, you know, if we think of polarization and people talking past each other is a disease it's like the pathogen keeps mutating it's hard it's very hard to even stay on top of 
So I'm going to disagree with you a little bit and defend the first three languages. <laughs> it's ironic. Um, when I look at Brexit or when I look at Trump um, and I see the, the issues that I felt, maybe I'm wrong, but that felt uh, viscerally important to their supporters, uh, even though I would not call, have called Trump a conservative because he has many policies that do not – that were not in 2016 conservative, or at least associated with the conservative wing of the Republican Party. And yet I think a huge part of Trump's appeal and a huge part of the appeal of Brexit is a civilization versus barbarism. And there are many different flavors of that. Some of it's uh, directed toward uh, outsiders, foreigners. Some of it is directed... I think more toward national identity, the pride of, of being, say, British, to take it outside the U.S. Uh, example. And so that, that uh, elite, non-elite, when I, let's stick with England for a minute, obviously a lot of young people voted against Brexit, a lot of older people voted for, obviously the opposite. Yeah, no, that. Young people voted against Brexit, older people were in favor of Brexit. And a lot of that was, a, to me, a tangled set of emotional issues, not about pocketbook, although it was often brought into the, the debate, but about what it means to be English, what it means to, to be related to Brussels, what it means to be part of the world at large. And I think uh, that same thing is going on in America. Well, uh, let me push back on that particular example. Look, what, look at what Brexit has done to the British political system. It's turned it inside out. It split the Labour Party and it split the Conservative Party. So um, it, it's clearly done something different than traditional conservatism. And I think uh, Trump does the same thing. I think a lot of traditional conservatives look at Trump's just behavior and conduct and say, this guy is violating guardrails. And guardrails are you know, the essence of you know, social guardrails, social norms, traditions, uh, respect for party elders, you know, he, he's got no respect at all for party elders and vice versa. He came in with, with no endorsements from anybody in the party. He came in having been reportedly insulted John McCain, the previous candidate. Um, so he doesn't seem to acknowledge any guardrails. Uh, for a traditional conservative, that would be, you know, awful. And for some you know, for this thin sliver of inside the Beltway conservatives, that is, you know, they do become never Trumpers. But it seems that for the people at large, for the popula his popular support, that's a good thing. That it shows that he's not going to go native when he comes to Washington. He's not going to betray us when he comes to Washington. So it becomes a good thing. And that, so I, I don't, I don't think he fits. Uh, I, I think he, he, I think he really does create a new, a new axis where, um, where, for example, a lot of hatred among his supporters is directed against against Republicans. They hate Romney. Right. They hate, and um, <coughs> so that there's. Um, so I, th I, 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 I do think that we have to that he doesn't fit neatly into the civilization barbarism story, and I don't think the populist movements around the world 
fit neatly there either. I mean, I'm just trying to think mentally as I go through Italy, France. Uh, you know, I don't think the resentment of Macron is a civilization versus barbarism. So what? how do you think about the, without trying to stuff it into a fourth axis, how, how do you think about this, uh, this fear of elites? I, I do think what has come to the front or distrust of elites. What is, one of the things that's come to the front is this idea that, that somehow we've been betrayed, that the people we kind of counted on to, quote, take care of everything have somehow uh, at, at best messed up, at worst pursued a policy that for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those, I think that second one is, is just way over exaggerated, but the first one's true and has been true for a long time, but it clearly has a, 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 um, um, a salience that it, it didn't have in the past. Yeah. What's going on? Well, um, I guess you know, I, I keep recommending Martin Gurry's work. The, his book is The Revolt of the Public. Um, and it's sort of a combination of this sort of media collision phenomenon that you know, the, the intimate is no longer separate from the larger society. And so people are much more, they, they treat the uh, elites in the newspapers and in politics as like an immediate family that's betrayed them. So, th- so it's just a much more visceral feeling and they can just be much more aware of it. The, the example that I like to cite, maybe people have forgotten this sort of so-called Rathergate where Dan Rather at CBS aired this um, basically hit piece on George Bush allegedly not uh, having done his military service properly, and they, sh- they included a letter that was written, and somebody on the Internet figured out that the letter, which supposedly was written in, you know, I don't know, 1960s, 1970s, uh, had used a proportional-spaced font that was only available in Microsoft Word you know, obviously in the 1990s. Uh, well, that just, th- that kind of ex- expose wouldn't have happened and uh, before the new media and the ability of people to rally around it. I mean, I, again, I'll go back to, you know, c- could anyone, even someone with, like Donald Trump, have gotten along with zero endorsements from the party, you know, no endorsements in the media, I mean, you needed that uh, really up until at least 2008. You needed some. You needed some base within a party leadership. You needed something within the elite. So the the uh, the new media environment has definitely empowered people and also made them much more aware of the failings of, and the perceived failings of elites. So I think it's um, helped to build this kind of populist move. I want to focus on that perceived feelings for a minute. Uh, this sounds, um, it's hard for me to say because it's an argument I would not have uh, accepted in the past, but is it not possible that the current media landscape, the information landscape, has made it much easier to scapegoat anybody and blame anybody and and relentlessly 
tell people a set of distorted facts or lies that that are easy for people to swallow because it feeds that that like they have of, of their tribal identity. Um, when we think of mass movements that are that are distortive, if we think about you know, take the Nazis in the 1930s, right? or the Communist Party during its reign. Now, they had control of the media. Either it could direct control or they got control. And we, we know that's important. Uh, it seems to me that in today's world, no one has control of it, almost by definition, at least right now, in the United States. Maybe in China it's different. Here it's different. But that fact that no one has control of it, which usually is a wonderful thing in an economic system because it allows people to tailor their consumption to their preferences in political space is not so healthy. And it's allowed what is effectively people to believe a set of conspiracy theories uh, about who's running the country and what that's doing to their lives that are simply not true. Um, And yet I think large swaths of people have come to believe them. Well, that, that's true, and they and they believe sort of equal and opposite conspiracy theories. You know, talk about you talk about an interesting term. I've been thinking about the idea underneath it, the state of closure that people have. What do you mean by that? Um, people want to not have to carry in their minds a sense of ambiguity of things that well, I'm not sure about, and I think that. You know, that sort of falls under the category of, of the sort of the psychological reasons why people use these organized things along their three axes. So, you know, if you're trying to, uh, you, know, you take something like uh, football players last year, the African American football players not kneeling during the national anthem. Um, you know, that's something where you could look at a lot of sides and, you know, ha- deal with an ambiguity. But, the sim- but for progressives, it's, they just, if they can simplify it to, okay, well, African Americans are traditionally oppressed and they're standing up against that oppression, then you've reached closure. You don't have to, uh, you just, it's much simpler to process that. If you're a, um, if you're a conservative, you just say, well, the, you know, the flag and the national anthem, those are symbols of... Sacred. You know, yeah, they're, they're symbols of, of American greatness, and so trying to tear those down is barbaric. And then, again, you've simplified it. Uh, libertarians, I don't know, maybe if you ha- ask two libertarians, you get three opinions. But one <laughs> thing that they might say is that, you know, what is it with this ritual of saluting the flag and singing the national anthem at the beginning of a football game. That sounds like state worship. Uh, you know, it's not just the football players who shouldn't be kneeling. Nobody should be, uh, or who shouldn't be standing. Nobody should have to uh, stand to do this state worship. So anyway, that's uh, on that. Um, I'd like to get a little bit more into this sort of the people who know better should do better. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, my lines on that. I think a couple of the places that just within the last six years have gotten worse in that dimension. So, so my initial read would have been that you know someone like 
Paul Krugman knows better and should do better. I mean, if, Paul, you know, if Paul Krugman walked into an economics seminar, there's just no way he would speak the way he does in his op-ed. I mean, it's just a completely different voice. He's completely compartmentalized his role as a scholar from his role as a public intellectual. But for the public at large, that isn't clear at all. They just see, oh, this Nobel Prize winning economist just beating up on conservatives. And so there's a case of someone who knows better but won't do better. And, he'll, I'm, <coughs> and he will justify it. I mean, he'll tell you that, oh, no, this, 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 I'm making the world a better place by exposing how awful these conservatives are. But, so it, it's, it's hard to, uh, you know, you're not going to change his mind on that. Um, I think that we had a norm until this administration that the president of the United States was sort of above the political fray. That you know they might have run a dirty campaign, uh, they might have been nasty, but once they're in office, the Oval Office, they're supposed to be uh, above the fray. Maybe they sent their send their vice president out to be nasty. Maybe their campaign commercials are nasty, but it doesn't come directly. Now, now they don't want to share it with the vice president. They want to keep it for themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is yeah. there a vice president? Yeah. I think we have one, but it, yeah. it's just got to be the lowest profile vice president of my lifetime. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Somebody's taking up all of the oxygen, I think, probably. Uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And uh, I'd say the other group that I think knows better but doesn't do better is on college campuses and in particular college administrators. I, mean, you know, I think the most feckless people on earth, but... Um, you know, you've got this situation where um, you have social justice act, uh, activists who demonize people. I mean, uh, you know, it seems if you'd asked me in the 1960s where should we head on issues of race and gender, it would be we're treating people entirely as individuals. You know, the whole race gender thing is transparent. You as an individual. Take your interests and your capabilities and do the best you can with them. And, and you know, we'll encourage you, we'll support you, and how that plays out is how that plays out. That's the way it looked like it was heading in the 1960s. Where it looks like it's, it is now, it's team black and team female against team white male. And... Um, and then, and that seems to justify throwing out on campus every value that used to be sacred for intellectual integrity. So you throw out free speech, you throw out open inquiry, and for purposes of this discussion, you don't model um, the rhetoric of persuasion, of dealing with, of treating other people with respect, of not making ad hominem arguments, of focusing on facts and logic. Um, so the, the rhetoric of persuasion has been pre- replaced by the rhetoric of demonization. You, know, you allow people to demonize white people in general. You allow people to demonize specific individuals and make them you know, un- not allowed to speak. And I think that's, that's a case where, again, the, there are people who know better. There are plenty of, you know, I would say academics of our age, you know, 65 years and older, who came from the left or are still on the left, who understand that. 
But that's, I, I fear that's fading. And that, that to me is even more worrisome than the Trump phenomenon because there's a pretty good chance that one way or another the next president will return the Oval Office to being a, a more dignified and uh, that, to you that, as a place where people use persuasion rather than demonization. But I, I think it will take a different temperament of a college administrator to say to the social justice activists, look, you can pursue your goals however you want, but we on campus operate in persuasion mode. We don't operate in demonization mode. And that statement is just not being made loudly and clearly enough as far as I can tell. So this is fun. I get to take the progressive viewpoint now. Okay. So I'm going to say, well, you say that because you're a white male and you've had a privileged life. And if you understood how hard it is to be a woman or black, you would understand that there are those norms that you value are actually oppressive. And so I say that. Well, let me let me just add one more piece to that. So that would be that would be the argument on the other side. And, and well, let me react to that. Then I've got, I've got another point about colleges I want to add. Um, I'd say you know if you if you're committed to that point of view, and I don't think you personally are. I think you're probably pay, paying a little bit of devil's advocate. I've uh, read your book. <laughs> I, I understand that that's a legitimate feeling. The question is, should it be carried out in this way? Yeah, but, and I, and I think at some point you have to to say. Know that allowing the discourse to switch from persuasion to demonization is just too high a price to pay. You know, you've got that. You have to. um, I, I just think at some point, if I were the college administrator, and clearly I'm not, uh, I I could, I could. give you all my scorn for college administrators, but I won't. We've got some of it already. Yeah, not enough. Not enough. I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to share some with you at lunch or something. But um, if I were the college administrator, I would just say, look, the intellectual integrity is what matters. You know, they, they've said for years we can have diversity and inclusion and we can still maintain our intellectual integrity. In fact, we'll be better for it. Okay, prove that that can happen because I think it's going in the other direction. So I have a different thought. Um, it, it seems to me that I wrote an essay where I stole your ideas, but at least I mentioned you, which is often doesn't happen. Uh, stole is not the right word, but I, I riffed on your idea and I said that the three languages of politics also lead to three blind spots of politics. And I think one of the blind spots, and I went through each uh, group, progressive, liberal, and conservative, progressive, conservative, and libertarian, and I suggested that each of them has trouble seeing something about the virtues of the other side. And and in the case of, I think, the progressive axis, uh, I'm not a progressive, so I should just mention the others first, the libertarian axis, libertarians have trouble understanding that freedom isn't good for everybody. We think it is. Uh, we think everyone should have the right and it's going to work out great, and economics in particular with free markets, everybody's going to, going to grow and prosper. 
That's literally not true, but we like to, that's our religious, that's our religious blind spot. For conservatives, they think that uh, people who are left behind, that progressives see as, as oppressed, they think, well, they just need to pick themselves up without imagining how hard that is if they had grown up in that situation. And so the blind spot I think progressives have is that they, by seeing people as victims, which of course they often are, they often fail to understand the role of agency and the potential for escaping victimhood and the potential for self-expression, the potential for, liber for liberation. And for me, the, the attitude that colleges have today, that social justice identity politics, I find it unhelpful to the people they're trying to help. And maybe I'm, that's just my you know, way of rationalizing it, but that would be my... Um, Argument. Yeah, I think in some ways the people it hurts the most are the African Americans and the women who can make it on, you know, you know, playing by standard rules because they're they're told they're now being told they're inferior or they're they're being put in a fishbowl like you're not an individual you're on team black you're on team female and you're and you know that and. I sort of denied their individuality. So I think that in some ways, I think they're the ones who are hurt the most. The other thing I would say is that I think universities long ago uh, lost the role that you wish they could play as a place where ideas are shared. Um, I think I'm going to accuse you of romance about what a college campus is. College campus is a place where 18 to 22 year olds live in in luxurious settings, typically uh, exploring some of the pleasures of life while occasionally going to class. Uh, and, you know, this is, listeners know I don't believe in surveys particularly, but for what it's worth, survey results do suggest that people spend much less time on their schoolwork than they used to. I think that's probably that's consistent with my casual impression of my kids and their college experiences. Um, College is just a you know a place to explore life, and it's a finishing school for for mostly rich people, um, which it's been for a long time. Just a smaller sliver now; it's a bigger slice. And so, the fact that there's cesspools of intellectual discourse relative to what they could have been really not that important. How's that for a depressing thought? Well, we, we should close on that note. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't think I can answer that one. <laughs> oh, come on, Arnold. I don't want to close on that note. I want you to fight back. Can't you say anything to make me feel a little bit better you know, about we, colleges? You know, we owe these people a chance to ask questions. Yeah, I suppose. My guest today has been Arnold Kling. Arnold, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Enjoyed it, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>